Welcome, my guest today, interlocutor par excellence, is Dr. Reggie Williams, Assistant Professor of Christian Ethics at McCormick Theological Seminary in Chicago and author of Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, Harlem Renaissance Theology and an Ethic of Resistance. Dr. Williams, welcome to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for joining me too. Uh, just a correction, I'm an, I'm an associate professor. I'm sorry, I'm reading okay. that off the back of the book. And uh, let me set the record straight, associate professor, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you're the authority uh, <laughs> when it comes to Bonhoeffer's ethics because of what you explore in what I consider to be one of the most important volumes in the Bonhoeffer library, and one that's really been uh, underappreciated. Uh, I think of this period in Bonhoeffer's experience as decisive. And, and I've even said that without Bonhoeffer's Harlem experience, I don't think we would know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Do you think that's an overstatement? No, I don't think it's an overstatement. Um, one of his dear friends, Miles Horton, who started one of his U.S. friends, what he went to school with at uh, Union Seminary during that year of study, 3031, Miles Horton, founded the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee with Jim Dombrowski. And Miles Horton says something very similar when he encountered Bonhoeffer coming back from church on a Sunday morning. He saw him uncharacteristically emotional or excited, he said, uh, waiting in the lobby of student housing. And he was excited about Sunday morning at Abyssinian Baptist. Horton says he thinks he saw the link, the thing that helped him to, I mean, that ended up eventually leading towards his death. So he, Horton, Miles Horton would agree with you. I'm glad to hear it because I don't consider myself a Bonhoeffer scholar, uh, not you know, in the category you and your fellows are in. I rely on scholars like you. But it was my own experience visiting Abyssinian Baptist and, and kind of sitting vicariously with uh, Bonhoeffer's experience, thinking of him in that moment of time and what he heard and the response to the gospel as it was proclaimed. And by the way, I'm not going to assume that all of our uh, listeners are familiar with Abyssinian Baptist. Can you tell us about the church that we're referring to here? Yeah, um, Abyssinian Baptist uh, founded, geez, uh, I'm coming off the top of my head here for the years of this thing, but it's turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, I believe, um, uh, as in its founding. Um, but for more importantly, for our purposes, it moves to its current location in Harlem in 1923 when it opens its doors. Um, and it was under the leadership of Adam Clayton Powell at that time. It's made a, it made a couple of different moves when he became pastor of that church um, in the early 19... I should have this off the top of my head, but the years of that church 
years of his pastoring in that church are escaping me at the moment. They're looting me. What matters, though, for our purposes is when it opens its doors there um, and why it opens its doors in its current location, uh, 39th and um, Lenox um, in, um, in Harlem. It's because of the Great Migration that Adam Clayton Powell Sr. pushes to have the church move from a kind of a, a more comfortable position in Manhattan into the Harlem neighborhood where it's at now when um, lots and lots of African Americans were making the move from southern states uh, to Harlem, leaving um, uh, this pest that was ravaging crops down in South Bull Weevil and the lynch law, which was lynching. Um, it's a state-sanctioned terrorism, white terrorism. And this great migration shift is a kind of a, almost like refugees from war um, pouring into the northern states. Abyssinian May opens its doors there. It's founded um, uh, in connection to an old name for Ethiopia, Abyssinia. Um, and it is a black um, American Baptist Today they have dual affiliation with the Progressive National Baptist and American Baptist churches. Um, and it is um, a fairly middle-class, wealthy black church. They built that church from tithes, the equivalent of uh, millions of dollars that they paid out of their own pockets. Um, um, Adam Clayton Powell Sr. was the pastor, uh, as I've already stated, when the doors opened there in 23 and when Bonhoeffer would have been attending there. In 3031, Powell was a senior pastor. That church, which is another thing, another thing that's fascinating about that church is that during the um, 1930, 30, uh, during the um, Great Depression that happens in 1929, um, that church was able to um, uh, not feel. Number of members in that community were did not feel the depression. In fact, they were still hiring people. Um, during the Depression, giving out clothes and food and, um, and so forth. But it's a, it's a, it was a fairly wealthy, upscale church with the pastor educated at, Har at, at Yale. He began uh, doing um, graduate studies there at Yale, um, at, at least. And, and would it be correct for me to characterize it as a center of black church life in that period or only for Harlem or was it a national uh, you know w w did it have a national reputation well it was the largest Baptist church in the country it's largest a, Baptist period yeah largest Baptist church I, I, yeah um, oh, how, how very yeah, one of the largest Baptist churches in the country I would say I might if I'm not if not the largest um, yeah uh, well, you're would you digging into my memories here of the uh, of the the church. Um, well, I'm just kind of trying to get at this the the importance of this encounter, um, and maybe maybe you could narrate us a little bit through how that came to be. In other words, okay, here's this blonde-haired, blue-eyed German. Uh, worshiping at a black church in Harlem, a black Baptist church. So this is, this is a German Lutheran 
worshiping with black Baptists in Harlem mm-hmm. in 1930. Uh, yeah. it, it's not something we would think, you know, uh, what happened here? How did, how did he make his way? I mean, I know a little of the story, uh, but not as well as you know it. Um, he gets to, to the church and, f- and really f- falls in love with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he came looking for something along the lines of what he found in Harlem. Let me just back up here a bit and tell you that it started in 1808. Oh, the so church it's was very church old. Was, it's very old. It was founded in 1808. Oh, my goodness. So in it lower was Manhattan. more than a century old right. when he encountered it. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, uh, and it, found, it was founded in 1808, and as I said, it opened its doors. In 1923, Adam Clayton Powell Sr. becomes becomes pastor of that church in 1908. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And by the way, let me just clarify. Some people say, Adam Clayton Powell, you know, you mean the political figure? No, uh, that would have been his son, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. This is Adam Clayton Powell Sr. And and you write about this in, in your first chapter of Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, you say, as a result of this encounter at Abyssinian Baptist and with the preaching of Adam Clayton Powell and the vivacious worship of uh, the outstanding choir there, you say, Bonhoeffer remembered the plight of African Americans and his experience of observing white Christianity from their hidden perspective became for him a shared understanding of the Jewish plight. Can you say a little bit more about that, what this connection was between his encounter with the black experience in the United States and his consideration of the Jewish experience back home in Germany? Well, a key moment is when he's talking, he's, he's writing his brother, Karl Friedrich, his older brother, about his visits he's making in Harlem. One particular, a letter that he writes on the way back from Cuba in December. I'm sorry, after Christmas. He spends Christmas in Cuba in 1930. And he's on his way back. Um, and he's writing about uh, the segregation that he's seeing in the South. Um, and he's also telling him about his frequent visits to, to Harlem. His brother is ecstatic that he's, that um, Bonhoeffer, that Dietrich is looking at all of this. His brother had been offered a position teaching at Harvard, and he was adamant about not raising, he says, any hypothetical children, children that he has not yet, he's not yet to have in the United States because of how racist it was. Mm-hmm. And he says that... Um, and Bonhoeffer, as they're, as they're writing back and forth about this, they say that we don't have anything like this in Germany. But then he gets back to Germany after being in Harlem and starts to see that, in fact, you do have something like that there. It's the way that Jews are treated. Not to mention the fact that Germans were also racist against Africans. After World War I, when the French placed um, African troops from their colonies in the Rhineland, 
space between Germany and Belgium and France, um, there was all kinds of racist paraphernalia that was printed about African soldiers um, and the children they were having with white German women. But yeah, he, they, he didn't quite see it until after Harlem. Race everywhere. And then the, the emerging racism of the Nazis uh, that moved the language of um, Herrenvolk, master, um, master people, the master class, to, or master people, Herrenvolk, uh, to Herrenras, master race. As they, as the as the Nazis would have described them, but yeah, he didn't quite see it. Well, this connection that you draw so masterfully in the in your book really resonated with me personally. I have to tell you that that this became more than just history, more than just theory for me for two reasons. One is, I was raised by a Jewish father and a mother who converted to Judaism to marry him. And so I, I kind of had a hybrid upbringing religiously. And while I am a Christian today, uh, an evangelical in particular, uh, my the Jewish side of my identity remains very, very strong and important to me. And of course, we would hear about distant relatives who were lost uh, in the camps uh, in the Holocaust. So there's a personal story there, but it becomes even more personal for me uh, because my father, I learned only very late in life, while he was literally on his deathbed, used to visit Harlem uh, often for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them was he was a, a supporter of the NAACP and uh, participated in some fundraising events with them in Harlem. So all of this resonated with me because my father drew those similarities in my upbringing. He would speak about, he was a big follower of MLK and, and always seemed to be aware of where he was next and, and supported him. And uh, so he would draw these uh, associations. And, and you make enough of this that you end your first chapter with this. You say, precisely at this junction, at the cross of Christ, this place of suffering where that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're alluding to his encounter with the suffering of African Americans in the United States, Bonhoeffer's understanding of Jesus underwent significant development during his time in New York. He was put in touch with the call of obedience to the God who shares suffering with the oppressed for the sake of justice. That's a pretty significant shift mm -hmm. for Bonhoeffer. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the consequences of that shift? Yeah. What did it do to him, for example, and the course? You said earlier, you referred to his martyrdom, his upcoming martyrdom. I've wondered, without the encounter in Harlem, would Bonhoeffer have even been placed on a trajectory towards martyrdom? Yeah, that's a tough question to answer. We don't know. We, we certainly know that he did have the encounter in Harlem. It's also important to recognize that no one in his family supported the Nazis. 
They were all of them in opposition to the Nazis. One of the reasons why we have such a record of Bonhoeffer's opposition is because he was so loquacious. He wrote a lot. <laughs> he um, sure he did. Just, he wrote, he chronicled a lot of his thoughts. Um, and in that, in all of that writing, we hear a clear conviction theologically. And we see a transition. And this is what's important for Bonhoeffer. Um, a transition from one who is primarily academic to one who becomes extremely pious. And his resistance to the Nazis is grounded in his piety. That's what happens in New York. Mm. Prior to New York, as he would say in a letter to a uh, former, uh, former love interest, he was more academic. He was really proud of his academic abilities. And when he was doing his PhD, he didn't want to be studying under anyone in particular. In fact, he took work from his professors in Berlin and synthesized it with work from this guy who didn't have a PhD, who was really um, uh, you know, Bart, Bart, um, Karl Barth, who's doing this dialectical stuff that's really new. Um, he synthesized two of those and created something very different, a Christian understanding of personhood. Um, these two oppositional schools, he synthesized them. But he did it because he wasn't really under, he wasn't really being guided by anyone, anyone person. That's what happens when he goes to New York. He doesn't like the idea of being under a particular professor or any group of professors with obligatory um, reading lists and assignments. He already had his PhD. Two of them. I mean, he his finished his habilitation, second dissertation at that time, and was a professor at University of Berlin. But he goes to New York, and he's looking around, doing all sorts of st doing studying in lots of other places, like he was familiar with. And something gets a hold of him in Harlem. Uh, it it is what he describes as the only proletariat church. The others are bourgeois. This is a, this is a connection to Germany. His brothers tell him when he, when he describes the fact that he wants to be a theologian at age 13, that the church is bourgeois. It's for the upper classes. It's a part of refined culture. To be Christian in Germany was to, be, was to, was to just be a part of the upper class, where you do weddings and funerals and you know, con um, confirmations and so forth. And it's a, it's Protestant culture. The church has country club. It's country club, elite. But, in, um, but he's looking for a community that puts their entire being under the gospel. It's not just a mark of culture. And in New York, he says he finds that in Harlem. A community mm -hmm. that's got their whole being, not just a part of culture, not just refinement, you know, in social club, but here they believe in the gospel, and it has, an, it has a significant impact on him. And um, he also is having these conversations about the Sermon on the Mount with a French pastor, Jean Lasserre, who's pushing him on the claims that Jesus makes for Christian obedience. And it's important to recognize that Lasserre's conversation about Christian obedience must be read through his experience of a community that puts their whole body, their whole being, their lives under the gospel in Harlem. 
he comes away from this no longer primarily academic, you know, not thinking of, I mean, not thinking of backing away from theology as he was prior to he, prior to going to New York, as Hans Pfeiffer tells us, and his really magisterial essay in 1996, that Bonhoeffer was thinking of leaving theology behind, and he writes that in a, in a letter um, to another friend. He's not, this is not going to satisfy him any longer until he becomes this pious person and finds that theology is not just an academic practice, this is our language of faithfulness to God. All of that happens in this space, 1930-31, and he comes back to Germany and makes this transition that everyone can see by 32. He's now going to church and taking it seriously. Um, Some have characterized that as a kind of conversion, if not a literal one. Would you characterize it as such? Yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, thing. Now, when we say conversion, we like the evangelical come to Jesus, walk the altar um, kind of thing. Um, mm. And it, it may not be so easily that, but what's clear is that he's taking his faith seriously. I don't know if he would have said that he walked an aisle. I think a light turned on for him that this is more meaningful than he had been allowing it to be. Certainly. I think that's clear to say. You can certainly hear that in his correspondence dating to that period. Mm -hmm. But if I can shift a little bit from Bonhoeffer himself to what he was or did encounter in Harlem, one of the ways you describe that is in one of your chapters, A, a Theology of Resistance. Mm -hmm. what, what was that about? Yeah, so it's one thing for Christians to understand the laws of the state to be uh, moral. That to be a good Christian means to obey the laws wherever they're at. That if you're, that if you're going to break the law, this is how people read um, what Paul is saying in Romans about the 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 um, state holding the sword or the you know, officer having the sword and that there are rules and I mean this is paraphrasing it there are rules and if you break the law the 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 sword is there to to guide and to punish that that means being that means something along the lines of being an obedient citizen is a is um, being a good Christian but that's not always the case as we know that's not always the case sometimes the government or the laws don't match what you know is Christian faithfulness. How do you discern? For people of color, that's actually not so challenging when the laws have always been counter humanity, our humanity. And we know that to love your neighbor as yourself means to be able to love yourself. And to be able to love yourself means you're going to have to disregard some of the legal writ some laws, structures, disregard them. That's resistance. Resistance, when, when the law of the land goes against your humanity or the humanity of your neighbor, resistance becomes a Christian duty, a Christian responsibility, as Bonhoeffer would put it, when um, in his ethics he describes responsibility as life that corresponds with reality since the incarnation. Jesus is our reality. Jesus is 
um, we, we also encounter our neighbor through Christ. If your neighbor is your, your if when you encounter your neighbor, you're also having a, an encounter with the one who stands in for all of human, human life. Then to love your neighbor may mean to go against the country, go against the laws of the land. That's resistance. It's Christian responsibility. Hmm. Yeah, the, the implications of that, particularly for Bonhoeffer, but for any of us, are considerable. Mm -hmm. And you, you explore that a little more uh, in chapter four of Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, where you talk about Christ, empathy, and confrontation at Abyssinian Baptist Church. And you, you note that uh, as time went on, he became a lay leader at yes. Abyssinian Baptist, yes. where you write, he encountered a tradition of Jesus as a communal experience that stressed attention to concrete historical realities and gave him a model for, I've never been good at my German, but Stellvertretung. Stellvertretung, right. Stellvertretung, uh, this vicarious representative action. Uh, and you, you continue the coordination of all of life under the gospel. So he, he's experiencing a theology very different from the the one in which he was formed in Germany. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, yeah, this is modeled on, I mean, as Albert Rabateau tells us in his book, Slave Religion, the invisible institution was an institution that met in um, defiance of the rules of slavery. After, especially after Nat Turner's rebellion in 1839, African, when enslaved Africans were not allowed to meet without a white person present, they had to sneak away, do it in secret, sometimes hiding wet blankets in trees to keep the sound from getting out around them, um, and praying, and worshiping in secret. It developed, the church developed a different understanding of the mission of the church and of the gospel than what was dominant in a society that was based on black people as chattel, as property. That's the origins of the worship community that Bonhoeffer um, called home while he was in the States, the Black Baptist Church. So there is, you don't have a split between body and soul, when um, salvation includes your body in a location where you can't say that you have, you own your body. What does it mean to be saved? It means something to do also with your body, like the language of salvation for someone who can't, who doesn't say they, can't say that they own their body, language of salvation for someone who doesn't know when the next meal is coming, you know, uh, it includes more than just theology in the abstract or hope for life after death. Here, salvation is holistic. And so uh, a community that puts their entire selves under the gospel includes body, soul, this world, and the next. 
Mm-hmm. So, the, so, so discipleship in that context includes um, your entire being being considered. And this is, so here again, you know, uh, I, I find in my own mind, of course, this is a podcast, we always say all about the lifetimes and interests of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and how they apply to us today. So, you know, I can't escape Bonhoeffer. He's in the title of the podcast. Uh, you know, we are Shank Talks Bonhoeffer. And yet with this, after reading your book, Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, I actually found myself thinking more about Abyssinian, about the black church experience, about our history in this country, and and the malformation of the gospel as it emerged out of pro-slavery Christianity in the United States, the white church and its many dysfunctions, my own experiences in the black church, all of that became much more important to me. And, and now, as you describe its impact on Bonhoeffer, I mean, you do a, a, a magnificent job of that in the book, but we've had a conversation offline, too, uh, where you talked about race and the backdrop of race to Bonhoeffer's experience in Germany, and that's what Nazism was all about, and so on. It just makes, for me, uh the whole black church anchor in this country, in the United States, where we are, that much more important. And, and its reach is, is so great. So, you know, in so many ways, Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus is about more than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's certainly a critically important history lesson a lesson in theology, a lesson in Christian experience. It's it's a tutorial on how we're to live the gospel today. I, I don't want to say too much about it, uh, Dr. Williams, but I can't say enough about it. it it's mm-hmm. an extremely important volume, certainly for anyone who is interested in Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his trajectory. And probably the main reason people are interested in him is because of his martyrdom. And I think you've just reinforced my argument, but I won't I, I, I won't tag you with that. I'll just mm. say, in listening to you, I become more convinced that without the encounter at Abyssinian, I think Bonhoeffer may have just been a minor asterisk in a you know, a, a plethora of German theologians of the era. But with his encounter uh, at Abyssinian Baptist in Harlem, we get the figure that we so respect and and depend on in so many ways today. I can't thank you enough for writing the book. Can't thank you enough for what you do in terms of contributing to the Bonhoeffer legacy and library. Can't thank you enough for taking on ethics, which seems to me the singular most important subject for the church today. 
And I can't thank you enough for this conversation, Dr. Williams. I hope it's not the last one, but you've certainly helped us to get to know more about Bonhoeffer's story, even more about the gospel itself. Everybody, please, please get a hold of Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, Harlem Renaissance Theology and an Ethic of Resistance, Reggie L. Williams, author, and I should know who published you. And Baylor all University Press. Baylor University. Uh, good, good Baptist history there. <laughs> right. right. Uh, Baylor University Press. Bravo. Congratulations on such an important work. Whether I'm successful nabbing your busy schedule in the future or not, um, we're going to do something with your book in terms of a study program here at the Institute. Folks, watch for it. It's invaluable. Thank you, Dr. Reggie Williams, for your valuable time with us. You've helped us to get to know Bonhoeffer, and that's what this series is, getting to know Dietrich. You've helped us to get to know him and much, much more uh, as a backdrop. So uh, really, really grateful for the time you spent with me, and, and I'll look forward to an ongoing conversation with you. All right. All the best. Stay safe. Thank you.